a lot of people out there don't think they have the ability to uh, build a nest egg to then build a family and they'll just go do degenerate things. Hey, I got one life on this planet. If I can't go build a nuclear family, why don't I just go get drunk every night and do weird sexual deviant things? And then BlackRock comes and scoops up all of all your, your properties. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. exactly. All right. What's up, everybody? This is Other Life. I am Justin Murphy. I just wanted to let you know that I write a free newsletter to thousands of people every week. It's where I publish my best work. I share events that you can come to and much more. We have an insane private community around the newsletter and it's free. Go check it out. Just go to otherlife.co. That's otherlife.co. When you subscribe, I'm going to send you a folder of PDFs that contain all of my personal highlights from a bunch of my favorite books that I've read over the years. So you'll get a million insights after just a few minutes of browsing these PDFs really. They're really special to me and I just figured I'd share them with you all. So that's otherlife.co, otherlife.co. All right, so Marty, first of all, thanks for coming out. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. Totally, pleasure to meet you. So first question, you are somewhat famous for thinking that ESG <laughs> is pretty much completely fake and evil. Tell us more about this. Can you explain? Uh, yeah, I mean, fake and evil is definitely a good way to describe it. At the end of the day, it's communistic, which at its core, I would argue, is evil um, because you have essentially uh, corporations with massive amounts of money trying to essentially plan industry. I mean, ESG, they say, hey, we have all this capital and we have the power to allocate it to buy shares of companies uh, and then we can essentially get on their boards and direct how they operate as companies. And when you dig into how those companies, number one, attain that money um, and what they're trying to do, it really does seem to be quite evil because you have like the Black Rocks, the Vanguards, and other types like that essentially getting passive revenues from people who are trying to... Uh, Put money away for for retirement because they don't have a good money to save their their work in uh, and they give all their money to blackrock and blackrock by proxy is able to allocate that capital to buy shares of company of companies and then blackrock with those shares uh, makes decisions for their end customer without their end customer really um, having any say in it and so what, what ends up happening is they try to push these uh, movements via their, their capital allocation strategies and their ability to attain uh, positions in boardrooms to, to centrally plan industry, um, starting with the low-hanging fruit of environmental causes. But that's the E. Once you get to the SG, the social and the governance, that's when things really get weird because they try to force uh, social norms on on whole industries right so for people who aren't aware it's basically esg is basically this kind of government legislated move to enforce certain standards of social responsibility on economic phenomenon and, and in particular uh there seems to be a conflict between the esg camp and bitcoin in particular because bitcoin is well known for using a certain amount of energy so what is your kind of meta theory of like what is esg really like what are they really trying to do the control. Yeah. It's just control at the end of the day. Again, okay. central planning. I mean, and so the ESG people argue it's not government mandates. It's the free market basically using capital to attempt to um, create outcomes in the quote-unquote free market. But we don't live in a free market because the money is centrally planned, uh, the money is centrally controlled, and you're able to print money ex nihilo. The people who get access to it first are banks that have access to the, the Fed's window, and then um, BlackRock is getting uh, favorable um, access to the Fed as well. And so they're basically contributing two ways from the money printer. Number one, um, they get access to the Fed directly, so they get the money first, and then they can go lend it out at an interest rate, which is not fair. And then number two, they basically erected this um, asset management structure that people are forced to participate in because they need to beat inflation. So they need you know, your plumber, your teacher, your fireman wants to focus on their job and they also want to be able to retire. And the only way they're going to be able to retire is if they give their money to somebody who says, all right, we'll take your money 
and will get you a return on that that is beyond inflation. And so um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's dual-faceted where uh, they have access to the Fed, and then because we live in a society where you can print money ex nihilo, uh, the average person can, can't simply save money in a good monetary good. And so they're forced to go out and speculate in the market, and they can't do it themselves, so they let BlackRock do it. And then BlackRock takes all that capital that's been given to them to speculate, and they use it, again, to buy shares and then dictate what these companies do. Right. So the whole ESG phenomenon is really rather disingenuous and cynical, in part because they want it to sound like they're doing something other than you know maximizing their own returns and their own power. But at the end of the day, it's really just this kind of moralistic maneuver to secure and increase the power of particular players, right? Yes. Yeah. The uh, Davos class, if you will, some people like to call them. Um, right. And so the ESG crew is trying to gang up hard on Bitcoin because there's this perception that Bitcoin uh, uses a lot of energy. You know, many, many have made the argument that actually for what Bitcoin gets you, it's a relatively small amount of energy. But one of the things I like about your attitude, Marty, and, and the way you come at this is that you really try to make no compromises. You're not trying to, you know, sound nice. You basically come out and say, no, you know what? It's great to burn a lot of energy. Could you? I think for a lot of people, this this kind of hits them, and they're like, "What on earth? How is this possible?" I'd love for you to kind of back out that argument a little bit. You know, why is it actually positively good for humans to burn energy? I mean, just look around. I mean, you're talking into a mic. We have lights here. We have cameras. Right, we'll it's great. <laughs> syndicate this to the world globally, and this is all built from energy as petroleum products. In the mics that we're using, the cameras that we're using, like humanity has only ever progressed if we find out ways to harness denser forms of energy. Right. But a lot of people would say that, of course, more efficient is better, right? If we can use less energy to do the same amount of cool stuff, that's better. And that's what a lot of people will think ESG is all about. It's about forcing people to, you know, be more efficient. But that's not really the case, is it? No. Could you help people see that? No. Well, and so there's a concept out there in economics called Jevons paradox, and it's typically applied to oil and gas specifically, where it is true, like, the, when we find denser forms of energy, we are more efficient, we can do more with less energy. But it's called Jevons paradox, because it's a paradox, you, you discover petroleum, you discover how to harness hydrocarbons, create combustible engines, and it's making uh, our ability to um, be productive in, in levering that up significantly. And you think, oh, like we're becoming more efficient, so we'll use less energy. But it's a paradox because you find that because you're more efficient, there's so much more that you can do. And so they're going to use more and more energy. And this is, again, a good thing. I think that's another thing with the ESG movement, particularly in this climate hysteria that, uh, that exists out there today, is that it's inherently anti-human because it, it just assumes that if you're using energy, you're bad. But I mean, any objective person that understands how we've gotten to where we are today cannot deny that we would not be here if we weren't using more and more and more energy. Like we should be trying to harness as much energy as possible because it, it leads to human flourishing. And that's the one thing the ESG and the climate hysteria movement has done a really good job of. It, it conflates the increased usage of energy with pollution and the destruction of habitat, but it doesn't need to be that way. You can produce oil and gas in very environmentally friendly ways. The industry has gotten significantly better at mitigating um, oil spills and pipe leakages and making sure that uh, people are able to access these molecules in in a safe way. And actually the best way to do that is to, shorten the delivery of, of these these assets. So being able to drill all across the country and send them through pipelines that are going to mitigate risk because they're not going as far as if you were to say import uh, oil from Ecuador over a shipping lane, which is exactly what California does, where they have the ability in state to produce all the oil they need as, as an economy in California. Yet they have this crazy environmental policy where they're not allowing producers in state to uh, produce oil themselves and use it locally. Uh, But they still have the same demand for oil year in, year out. It's around 600 million barrels a year right now. And instead of producing it locally, they import it from Ecuador, where producers there aren't as as clean with their extraction methods. They're tearing down the Amazon rainforest, and then they're 
putting it on shipping containers that are using diesel and shipping it over water where the uh, likelihood for like a environmental disaster is significantly higher. So one of your positions is that the entire meme of renewable energy sources is basically a psyop, right? Oh, yeah. And it's all about control, right? It's renew- that, renewable. What is renewable? Like the, the words matter. Definitions matter. Like there's nothing renewable, renewable about solar or wind. Um, yes, photons and air spinning, that, that'll happen until the sun burns out and or... I don't know how wind would stop, but uh, the mechanisms by which you harness the solar energy and the wind energy are not renewable at all. Like solar panels are coal panels. At the end of the day, you need a significant amount of coals to ma- coal to make them, a lot of toxic chemicals. They have a relatively short life cycle. Similarly with wind turbines, uh, you need a lot of cobalt, you need a lot of petroleum. Um, and so there's nothing, the vernacular that the, the green movement throws at us like really doesn't make sense when you come to actually try to define the words. There's nothing renewable. There's nothing sustainable. Everything comes with trade-offs. And wind and solar specifically, going back to energy density, it's a step backwards because you're going back to less dense energy sources. Hmm. Right. So if people really cared about the environment, they would just be all in on nuclear. Exactly. Right. And they're not. Right. Uh, I mean, Which at, shows that it's the ESG movement is really not about environmental protection and this kind of do-gooder you know, angle. It's It's really a cover for something much more sinister. Yeah, I do think these people are demonic and they want to control the uh, the lower substrates of the economic classes. And the way you do that, you control the money, you control the energy. And now we're finding the money is extremely important for coordinating economic activity. One of the most important economic activities is uh, getting energy out of the ground, producing electricity and getting that to the wider economy. And then we're also finding that energy is a key input in food and it is hurting our food supplies globally right now because we've messed up our energy policy pretty terribly over the last three decades. And so if you control the money, the energy and the food, you can control people at the end of the day. Okay. Fascinating. And you use the word demonic. I'm curious kind of how literally you mean that. Do you have a kind of metaphysical riff on this? I'd love to hear it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So I grew up Catholic. Um, I was one of those Catholics who I grew up in Philadelphia and I got really going into college, got really turned away from the church due to all the diddling that was going on in the Catholic church specifically. And in college, I probably would have considered myself an atheist. But um, as I moved through my 20s, got married, uh, started building a family uh, and then doing that in my own life and then looking out at the the broader world and seeing how degenerate society has become and all that I have uh, gotten back to semi roots of uh, like believing that Jesus's message is a good one and um, that we should live a life of, of virtue and, and have some of these um, more moral frameworks from which to, to operate. And it does seem like there's kind of a correlation, isn't there, between the ESG stuff and the the really kind of degenerate morals, isn't there? Like, uh, you know, the, the Epstein crew is kind of like the same types of people as the ESG people, right? There, There is something there, isn't there? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're directly right. <laughs> connected. Right. Like. right. Do you have do you have a read on like what what is that underlying, you know, moral or ethical uh, substrate that connects the, you know, the the cosmopolitan, ethically degenerate, you know, sexual deviance and the, uh, you know, the moral grandstanding uh, po- power seekers? I, I wonder what that kind of common threat is well if you have a degenerate so for the power seekers if they want to seek power you just create chaos right and a great way to do that is to incentivize people to live a degenerate lifestyle where they're living paycheck to paycheck um since there's a lot of people out there don't think they have the ability to uh, build a nest egg to then build a family and they'll just go do degenerate things hey i got one one life on this planet if i can't go build a nuclear family why don't i just go get drunk every night and do weird sexual deviant things and then blackrock comes and scoops up all, all of your, your houses <laughs> yeah, yeah right. exactly okay yeah That's using awesome. the canteen effect it's yeah no i do think there are demonic forces i get made fun of a lot for for using that phrase specifically but you just look out there and there's there i, I do believe evil exists i do believe there um there is a right and a wrong and i do believe those 
who um, are bad people have control of a lot of the systems that we are subjected to today and, the, and they're using that to seed degeneracy into the wider uh, populace yeah totally agree another interesting thing about your perspective marty that i like is you're very emphatic in believing that this esg phenomenon is going down you think it's going to lose you're, you're highly confident that it can't win that it will be defeated and i think this maybe it would be surprising for a lot of people because a lot of people feel like you know the the social justice warriors, the moralists, the grandstanders, and the these kind of people seeking control are a lot of people feel like those people are winning and maybe they're going to keep winning. And a lot of people feel, you know, very anxious about that. Make the case for why you're so confident that all this stuff is going to go down and Bitcoin and truth will win. Because ESG is doomed from the start because it just completely denies economic reality and the reality of humanity and what we need to survive as a as a species, if you will, and, or as a mankind, and economic reality is coming ahead. I mean, just look what's going on in Germany. They were really, on the environmental side of things, they were really the first to um, make the move to wind specifically and decommission nuclear power plants and coal plants in favor of wind. And um, one can make a very strong argument that what's going on in Ukraine right now is only possible because uh, Germany basically shot itself in the foot and um, and moved away from reliable energy sources to unreliable. And there, Russia has all the leverage in the situation. We're like, hey, we know that you guys need our natural gas, so we feel confident we can go invade Ukraine without you guys making a big fuss because we, you need our energy at the end of the day. Um, so there, that's the E, I think, at the end of the day, once the lower level of Has Maslow's hierarchy of needs, energy and food, begin to decay and they're not as uh, reliable as they have been uh, in the past, people begin to wake up and say, wait a second, what are we doing here? Like, why can't I turn my lights on? Why do I have to turn my air conditioning down in Texas, uh, in what's supposed to be the energy capital of the United States? in the middle of winter why is the grid going down when we have a winter storm here um why is beef hitting 20 dollars a pound why is uh, it impossible to get baby formula that's when people start to realize or start to ask questions say like how did it get this bad and the only logical conclusion is policies enacted by esg led us here and that's just the environmental side of it and then you get to the social aspect and and talk about like drag queen happy hours and all the woke stuff that's being taught in schools like and, and like even, I mean, I come from Philadelphia, a very liberal city, even uh, my family members and friends who are typically very liberal and have children are like, this is too far. Like, yeah, we, we're okay with a lot of the socially liberal things, but they're, they're trying to take too much ground in that regard. And people are having a natural reaction to that, which is like, well, this is too far. We need to move back to uh, a saner way of living and so yeah i think esg is doomed and from like the investment landscape like esg funds don't outperform the market at the end of the day right um they actually perform significantly worse so uh the whole uh marketing of esg funds is like this is what the world wants uh so all this stuff is going to be built and we're going to invest in it for you and uh, create returns that outcompete the S and P and all the other indices that that exist out there, and it's simply not materializing. And so, okay. in so, many aspects, it's it's doomed. So basically, because it's based on lies, it's intrinsically dysfunctional, which means it's going to underperform, and it's just going to not be able to sustain itself compared to that which is you know based on truth and which will you know relatively overperform. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. And so, how do you see this playing out in the longer term? I'm just curious. What it's obviously impossible to to predict the long term future, but I'm just curious about your intuitions. You know, as this um, polarization continues to occur, where the the dysfunctional kind of lying, cynical moralists go in one direction, and the 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 Bitcoiners, the the, the based gang, uh, you know, continue to thrive more and more. Do do you see these two camps going off into different worlds and kind of it's kind of a um, a splitting dynamic, a diverging dynamic, or a, a, to the degree that it's almost like two different societies? Or do you just see one kind of winning the game and dominating the the current society as we know it? I'm just curious how, if you have any mental models around that. Yeah, I think you have uh, a bifurcation for at least a bit. Um, 
because again, these well, society at large has been subjected to Malthusian fear spells that are like hard to uh, shake shake out of. A lot of times, a lot of people will continue going down that path. And yeah, so there's uh, going back to like Christianity. I read an interesting book last October when I was driving down to Austin to move here. Uh, I listened to it on Audible, the Benedict Option, and it basically described how. After the fall of Rome, you had the Benedictine monks essentially go create these parallel societies outside of Rome where they didn't do what the Romans were doing at the time. They they basically erected a parallel society that had um, different morals, ethics, and ways of operating. And I think we'll see that here in the United States and more broadly globally, Bitcoin being a key part um, for for a time at least. But I do think society will converge at the end of the day because, again, money is the most important tool we use as humans and economic reality will uh, will um, basically force the issue where people will be forced to uh, use Bitcoin because it is the best money on the planet. And if they want to actually be productive and uh acquire abundance for themselves are going to have to use Bitcoin. But yeah, I think there will be, um, there's going to be a big battle in the meantime where uh, the Bitcoiners building the system in parallel to a decaying system that's desperately trying to keep everybody in it. So I think you're best known for your Bitcoin media company, but you're also uh, building a natural gas slash Bitcoin mining company. I think this is quite interesting. People might not know about it quite as, as much as they know about your media company. Could you kind of give us at a high level just your how you see the interplay between uh, energy and natural gas in particular and Bitcoin mining? Like what is your thesis there? Um, what exactly is the play that you're up to? Yeah. And so again, energy is life. We have a lot of energy. Uh, we have a lot of stranded energy. So that's the play I've honed in on is there's a lot of natural gas wells out there. They're completely stranded, don't have access to pipelines to get that gas to a utility or a refinery where it can then be turned into electricity and sent to regi- residential consumers. Um, basically people drilled wells, uh, uh, a lot of these wells were oil and gas wells where they only cared about the oil. They shipped the oil out and the oil well ran dry and they just capped the natural gas. And so um, I'm focused on Appalachia where there's hundreds, thousands of these just stranded wells and you, you show up and you say, hey, this gas is stranded, has no ability to get to market. Uh, you buy it from the landowner or whoever owns the bonding lease on the natural gas well and then you basically bring generators on site, hook that up to the well, and then plug Bitcoin miners into that generator. It produces electricity, and then you mine Bitcoin there. Um, And so it's basically a stranded energy arbitrage play at the end of the day. So how much does it cost about to buy a stranded well? Depends. So Uh, like average, just curious ballpark. uh, It's, I mean, you can can buy these bonding leases for very cheap, like three to $10,000 a year. A bonding lease is just like the right to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, it depends on the scale of the well. I think a lot of the wells I'm going out after produce a, a very small amount of gas. You can put like 15 to 50 miners on them, where a lot of the bigger mining operations here in Texas or 200 megawatts have tens of thousands in them. And so how does it work exactly? Are you like hiring employees to like go to Tennessee and like set up shop on a Bitcoin miner? Uh, we have, yeah, so I have partners uh, who have boots on the ground up in that area, and they're um, central, they're, they're located right around, so if we ever need to change oil in the generator or fix a miner, they're within uh, an hour or two. It's a fascinating operation. So I've heard you talk a little bit about your longer-term you know, theses around what that all might become. I think you have some interesting takes on the relationship between you know natural gas, mining Bitcoin, and also just the role that uh, energy providers will play in the bitcoin economy in the future paint paint us that that future you you have some interesting theses on how this stuff pans out yeah so up until this point 13 and a half years into bitcoin's existence um it was it's really not until last year two years ago i would say was it cemented in people's minds more broadly that bitcoin is something that's here to stay uh, and will be with us for the long run. Uh, and up until that point, up until recently, uh, it's been Bitcoiners who've essentially been buying the computers necessary to mine Bitcoin and finding cheap electricity 
to plug them in and, and make Bitcoin and hopefully make a profit on that. Um, and now we're transitioning into this period where it's obvious that Bitcoin's not going anywhere and uh, mining specifically helps energy producers monetize previously unmonetizable assets that they have. And so mining is a race to drive down your all-in cost of electricity and the people and what you need is cheap energy to do that. And the people with the cheapest energy are the energy producers. They, they can produce it the cheapest. And so... Uh, this is chapter one of Bitcoin mining. I think the next chapter will be energy producers getting into Bitcoin mining in a big way because they're now recognizing that uh, the Bitcoin network provides them with a market which they can monetize their wasted uh, energy resources uh, directly on site. And so due to the fact that they have, they can produce energy at the cheapest and they have the the largest incentive to monetize their wasted assets. I think what we'll see over the next decade is uh, energy producers becoming the largest miners on the planet. And are you starting to see the traditional energy companies actually doing this? Or is it or is their lunch going to be taken by upstarts like you? Like, are you watching them actually start to do it? Yeah, no, uh, that's a big question is like, who becomes who first Do Bitcoin miners become energy producers, which is, you can argue that's what I'm trying to do with my natural gas player to energy producers become Bitcoin miners. I think it'll be a mix of both, but I think the energy producers will dominate. They are getting into it um, in a big way. Oil and gas specifically is um, really experimenting. I mean, I know um, I I can count uh, at least five publicly traded oil and gas companies that either have Bitcoin mining uh, pilots that they've started or are actually mining at a material scale already um, may not be as public with it, but they're definitely doing it. So I'm curious a little bit more about the specific economics because it's fascinating. So when you when you buy an average, you know, stranded natural gas well, how long until that's profitable from Bitcoin mining? Uh, a few a few variables here. Yeah. Um, it depends on when you get the ASICs, when you get the computers. So, um, one of the wells that we acquired, uh, we got live in January. I bought the ASICs for that in November of last year, and uh, they were trading at around, I believe, $80 a terahash. Um, and right now, that same ASICs going for like $30 a terahash. So, if I were to buy it today and plug it in, um, it would ROI within probably a year. Um, the ASICs that I bought last November, depending on the price of Bitcoin, um, will probably take uh, 18 to 18 months to two years. Uh, and But if the price of Bitcoin rips right. and hash rate uh, lags a bit, you can, you can ROI a bit quicker. So there's variables. You have the ASICs, the power generation, and then the price of Bitcoin. Um, so uh, that really dictates when you're going to um, get that return on capital. Okay. So the other life, you know, uh, is, is a small media company an independent media company. So I, I want to also look under the hood of your media operation, which I find also very interesting and impressive. I guess my first question though, before we dig into that is, um, how do you do all these things at the same time? I'm curious. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like what's your everyday life? Like how, how are you running a media company and this like pretty sophisticated, uh, creative natural gas play, you know, tell us about your operation. Like what kind of teams are you running? How are you managing this? What's your everyday like? Uh, it's, it's very chaotic. Uh, I'm not the most organized person in the world. And so I basically just wake up and say, all right, what the hell do I need to do today? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the media company, I mean, content is so high leverage. I was telling you before we record, like I started at Barstool. I started the podcast at Barstool. I'd sneak into the studios and record after hours. I worked there selling podcast ads. And then at night I would record TFTC and um, it's love him or hate him. Dave Portnoy does have a good, uh, work ethic. And one thing he always talked about was like blog never sleeps, just show up day in and day out. And so I've been writing my newsletter since June of 2017 podcast started in September of 2017. I've been writing almost every day during the week and recording at least one or two episodes of the podcast, uh, every week for the last five years. And, uh, what that has allowed me to do is create, uh, a network where I have all these people in the Bitcoin space who come on the show, we become friends, we talk about different parts of the industry and um, I'm sort of able to leverage that network to begin uh, delving into these other areas outside of the media company. 
Okay, so the media was really kind of the base from which you're doing these other operations? Yes, I mean, it, it helped me develop, um, I guess you could say, like, uh, people trust that I know what I'm talking about and understand the dynamics of Bitcoin and the different variables I play within the overarching ecosystem. And, and so that has opened doors for me from a networking perspective to, to be able to get in um, to these areas, but never, like I never envisioned it would turn into this. It's sort of just, uh, evolved naturally. I, I started the newsletter, uh, in June of 2017. It was because the price of Bitcoin was going up. I've been into Bitcoin for a while. My friends and family knew who I had been, and they were just incessantly te- texting, calling, emailing me. And I said, all right, I'll write this newsletter and you can get a drip of Bitcoin information every day. That evolved to people like, hey, you should start a podcast. So I started a podcast, and then it was like, hey, um, do you want to get on this mining operation? I was like, yeah. Um, and I also work for a venture fund uh, in the Bitcoin space as well, and uh, undoubtedly the the media uh, allowed me to get to that point too. It's really interesting that you had your start with Barstool. I don't know if a lot of people know that because in, <laughs> in my research on you, I didn't come across that, but that that's really fascinating. I'm curious, uh, what else did you learn from Dave Portnoy? Ah. <sighs> No, well, going back to like ESG, like you can't give a fuck what people think about you. Right. Um, authenticity is key. Um, whether you like Dave's authenticity or not, you can't deny that he's authentic. Um, and that's something I've tried to apply uh, to the newsletter and the podcast. Just be authentic. Like, hey, here's what I know about Bitcoin. Here's what I think about Bitcoin. Here's what I'm seeing. And I think that's really helped me develop a really good relationship with my audience and um and is why the podcast has grown to what it is today and the newsletter as well mm-hmm. um, is um, being authentic. And uh, a lot of the content in Bitcoin up to that point was like highly technical and a bunch of computer nerds. Um, I love you computer nerds, but like <laughs> I, I tried to bring like a, a different voice to it where it was like your average Joe who really didn't want to dive into how SHA-256 mining works or the the interaction of the gossip network of, of Bitcoin nodes works. It was just like, I don't want to say dumbing it down, but putting it in, in a way in which other people could, could access the importance of Bitcoin and, and what it's doing today. Totally. And you mentioned also before the, the importance of volume and consistency. You learned that from, from Dave Portnoy. Have you, have you really been doing like every day since that beginning or like what's your cadence? What is your kind of scheduling rhythm that you've been doing? It's, the newsletter slowed down a bit in the last few months, but that was just because of the arrival of my second son. Congratulations. Um, thank you. But for uh, the first few years, like you went really hard. In five terms days of a week. Yeah. Every Like five days a week, every week for, for what years? A couple years At or what? At least four and a half years. Yeah. Right. So that's definitely like the, the Dave Portnoy ethic. Got to go hard consistently. Yeah high volume yeah, yeah. And, and you feel like that's that really can make or break like the 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 liftoff of a media project yeah i mean it took us probably the podcast and podcast is the easiest to gauge like the growth because you see the downloads it probably took us three years to get our first million downloads and we did a million downloads in the last two months and um yeah i think it's just that momentum keeping it up and then on top of that like it's selfish selfishly like uh, the, the consistent cadence is good for developing an audience, but it's also forces you to like stay up to date with what's going on and mm. stay sharp in terms of what's going on in development of the, the Bitcoin world and um, its its impact on the the broader world. And yeah, and the content has changed a bit too, sort of evolved over the years. Where uh, we'll talk in the newsletter and on the podcast about things that are tangential to Bitcoin and not Bitcoin specific, like energy and uh, the ESG movement and the world economic forum and um, ranching and all these grassroots movements that are beginning to metastasize as, as people react to the increasing like central control of the world. And is the newsletter all you or do you have people helping write it or edit it? No, or? that's uh, that's part of the brand. I just write it, don't even read it and post it. And uh, Okay, nice. Still, So still all you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. It's really cool. Um, you told me a kind of funny story before we started recording about a Dave Portnoy story. Do you want to <laughs> you want to retell that? Yeah, no, it was a good lesson for me <laughs> about throwing people in the deep end. But I mean, I feel comfortable saying this because he said it publicly. So I don't think he'll mind if I tell the story. But like, yeah, in 2017... During that bull run, um, 
I was known as Bitcoin Marty in Barstool's office and Dave was buying Bitcoin and I told him, Hey, if you're going to buy that, like you should get it off an exchange and hold it in a wallet that you control. And I set him up with the Trezor and he moved Bitcoin from the exchange he was using to the Trezor. And I found out a couple of years later that he lost it. So um, we can thank Dave Portnoy for burning a, a few, uh, <laughs> a few Bitcoins into the ether to help uh, <laughs> the scarce supply there. That's hilarious. Do you think that there's a world where, one day barstool buys tftc <laughs> i don't know um i love dave i love barstool i do not agree with the uh, the gambling tilt they have though so i don't know if i would be, oh right uh, he's gone hard into that hasn't he yes um <laughs> yeah that's it yeah the gambling again it's i've never gambled in my life but like again it's just one of those things that's just like degenerate it's it's uh it's not something that i want to be pushing on people Right, right. So on other topics, you've recently been calling for American states to defy the federal government when it comes to energy policy. I would love for you to you know, provide some context for that. What is coming down from the federal government that you think states should be defying them on? I mean, we had Joe Biden come out yesterday say we're in a climate emergency. There is no climate emergency. Humanity's fine. If you look at the stats, uh, I believe it was Obama's um, energy advisor, uh, in 1985 said that there would be a billion climate related deaths by 2020. Uh, and over that 20, uh, or excuse me, 35 year period, climate related deaths fell by 99%, uh, because we were able to harness energy to protect ourselves against nature. Um, and so when it comes back to like, what should states defy, it seems like the Biden administration is really going to push this uh, wind and solar, this move to wind and solar and electric vehicles in favor of reliable energy sources. And I, I think states should begin to just actively defy uh, federal mandates to push a certain energy mix on any local economy. And I, I think we have a good precedent for states doing that, particularly with marijuana. Colorado um, in 2012 said, hey, we're going to legalize marijuana here, even though it's federally illegal and that started a movement where that's um that's pervasive now like marijuana is essentially legalized in america even though it's still not federally um in many parts at least Uh, i think you can apply that to the energy sector as well um particularly with nuclear uh, where the nuclear commission hasn't green lighted a a new um nuclear power plant in decades and i think states should just say hey we're not going to try to get through the red tape of this federal nuclear commission we're just going to start spinning up nukes because it's blatantly obvious that they're with modern day technology they're safer than than ever and they produce the the densest form of energy that we have at our fingertips right now and so i think texas is a great state to do that especially considering the increased demand on the grid and the problems that this grid has been having a few more nuke plants spread throughout texas would go a long way to alleviate that problem and i i would highly encourage greg abbott and anybody in the texas state legislator to begin just saying all right we're not going to wait for the nuclear commission to green light nuclear power plants down here we're just going to build them um is that something that private companies you think could just do in a kind of legal gray area or something uh well no um not not right now i mean there's there's one company called oklo oklo and they they're building these small modular reactors <coughs> excuse me that range anywhere from one megawatt uh to 10 megawatts of generation i think they may even be able to go higher than that but they're uh, at the cutting edge of this technology in terms of it being safe and efficient and um most importantly modular uh and they um, have been trying to get through all this red tape for years. And I think only a couple of months ago, they had the, the nuclear commission say, uh, not good enough. Like you guys can't go and sell your products, um, commercially. And so there are private companies out there building this technology. They're just being completely handcuffed by the federal government. I wonder if there's some way to make companies like that just go completely off the financial grid with like, you know, uh, super state of the art Bitcoin, but also like, you know, uh, zero knowledge stuff, like kind of try to create some kind of like absolutely impenetrable economic shell for like a private nuclear company to just kind of shoot out in front of the entire economy or something like that. Well, that's, I mean, I think that's the way to do it, right? Because the, the, 
most effective way the governments will shut down anybody trying to disobey the federal mandates is cut off their access to banking and happened to marijuana in Colorado and um, other states like that. But marijuana industry can handle that with cash. I don't think the the nuclear industry uh, could do the same because the amount of cash they need to store would be uh, extremely high. Um, So yeah, I mean, the, the best thing for them to do to bootstrap, and this is actually uh, an idea that I, a couple people I'm very close with have talked to with Oklo is um, basically what they want to do is go replace diesel generation uh, in uh, isolated areas like in Idaho and Alaska, and they'll show up and basically put their modular reactors down and create transmission lines to get get it so the residents can receive electricity from the reactors. But they have a problem where uh, it takes about 18 months to build out those transmission lines. So those reactors sit there for 18 months, not making any revenue. So it's not really economical. Um, and what you could do is you can plop them down, build out the transmission lines over the course of 18 months. And in that 18 months, hook up a Bitcoin mining operation to the reactors and make Bitcoin, make revenue while you're waiting for that transmission line to get built out. Transmission line gets built out. You put all the miners off, rinse and repeat. Um, that is uh, to incentivize the bootstrapping of and the viability of those projects. But then you just take it to another layer where you just strictly transact in Bitcoin. Like if you want to buy electricity from our reactor, you have to pay in Bitcoin. And then they have a Bitcoin hoard on their balance sheet that they control, private keys that they hold. And there's nothing the government can do to stop them from accessing money. Um, So I do think there is a future in which excuse me that's possible but um it's going to take a lot of balls uh you're (laughs) um overtly disobeying one of the most powerful forces on the planet right now but i do think that's what we need right now sounds cool (laughs) maybe someone listening to this will uh, take up the call um so are you bullish on uh fission are you excited by this or um no i'm not well versed enough to make like a i'm just curious um i mean i hear people say they are i don't know well, I think it's, there's an interesting question I've never heard anyone discuss about, you know, it's like if fission is figured out and energy becomes virtually free, how does that affect proof of work? It's just a kind of an interesting question. That's a good question. Yeah. I, I don't know that anyone has really like thought that through, but yeah, yeah in any event. So, okay. Yeah, I would fall back on there's like no such thing as a free lunch. There will be some, and now I'm like playing this out in my head too. There is stuff you can do with the waste heat of the ASICs. So you can use that heat to generate like an, uh, uh, another revenue stream, whether you're uh, using that heat to um, boil water to clean water somewhere or um, heat a, a greenhouse. But again, that's not as profitable as, as right. mining Bitcoin. But it's, but isn't it the case that mining, it, it, if it were, if it somehow became on net profitable, it would kind of, it would, that would break proof of work, wouldn't it? It's like, it has to be costly for it to make sense. That's the whole game theory of it. Yeah. And that's the beauty of the difficulty adjustment. Um, in Bitcoin, like if it ever does get to that point where most miners are unprofitable, they'll turn off, block production will slow down, and then the difficulty will fall, making it more profitable to mine Bitcoin Right for those who plug back in. Right. Fascinating. So are you bullish on Texas as a state? Like, do you feel like um, it's it's a, one of the best places to be on these fronts of, you know, um, state independence of, you know, taking chances against, you know, the, the edicts of the federal government, like from what you're seeing in the state of Texas, from the people, you know, and just what you're watching, like, are you bullish or are you concerned or what's your view? Uh, mixture of both. Um, very bullish on the ethos of Texas and private property rights and come and take it. And that sort of mentality that exists down here, but going back to energy, like, I think there's a lot of Mal incentives in the in the Texas energy markets, particularly around wind and solar. You have we've mentioned the grid problems that Texas is having, and they're trying to solve that by building out immense amounts of wind and solar in West Texas, and that's not going to solve the grid problem because you're just adding unreliable energy capacity. Like you can you can build out hundreds of gigawatts of wind and solar uh, at the end of the day, but if the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, uh, that hundreds of gigawatts of capacity is not going to produce electricity, so it's not going to help the grid. At the end of the day, again, I, I think Texas needs to build more nukes, more uh, natural gas power plants. And I do think the re- renewable energy credit grift that is uh, 
very much alive down here is adding some negative externalities uh, to the grid that will um, that could make things uh, a bit precarious down here, especially as people flood the state from California and the Northeast like we did. Uh, I think they need Texas really needs to hone in on how to actually create a reliable grid, and it's you do that by creating reliable base load, not building out wind and solar. That's the only thing I'm worried about in Texas. But other than that, yeah, I think the the spirit uh, of the the Republic of Texas is strong. Uh, I do think they will figure out their grid problems when push comes to shove. And I do think if you want to be in any state that's going to put up a fight against the federal government that's trying to encroach on your freedoms, Texas is the place to be. Nice, nice. Well, I'm sure Greg Abbott listens to this podcast. So <laughs> there, there you go, Mr. Abbott. So um, I know something else that you're interested in is the future of, of Bitcoin for media monetization. Obviously, you have a media company. Obviously, you're focused on Bitcoin. And this is something you're thinking a lot about. I, I understand that you're actually building a project in this area. You're trying to use Bitcoin to hopefully improve how uh, you know creators or uh, you know media producers monetize content. Uh, this is something that's very interesting to me and my audience. I have a lot of writers and creators in, in my audience, especially people that are kind of defecting from traditional institutions to do, to do uh, creative and intellectual work independently. So I'd love to hear a little bit at the outset of just like at a high level, how you see this stuff panning out. Like what, what types of patterns or models do you think are most likely to succeed when it comes to Bitcoin really changing how media is produced and sold? Yeah, so it's going to start on the edges where you have as content producers uh, who produce wrong thing can get demonetized. I mean, we've seen it. We've seen it happen in mass. People getting kicked off YouTube, uh, Spotify, people trying to sh- um, cancel Joe Rogan on Spotify. Everybody says Substack is the last bastion of free speech in written form uh, on the Internet, but they still rely on Stripe and um, all these centralized payment processors. And so I think... The issue is going to be forced and already is beginning to be forced where you have people who are putting out these ideas that uh, the, the administrative state doesn't like and they're going to begin to try cutting them off like they did with Operation Choke Point um, under the Obama administration, like they did to WikiLeaks. And now that's going to extend out to people who are simply writing content that the state doesn't agree with. And when that happens, the only solution that is going to be out there is Bitcoin. And so what we're building... At TFTC, there's an open source Bitcoin payment processor called BTC Pay Server, and we pair that with Ghost, um, which is an open source content management system. We host our BTC Pay Server on computers that we control, and we host our Ghost instance on computers that we control. And basically, essentially what that allows us to do is inoculate ourselves from that ever being a problem for us, where we can create a subscription service on TFTC, we're building right now um, where if I wanted to um, have paid subscribers to get special content they can pay me in Bitcoin and that goes directly to my BTC pay server which I control Um, you can do content paywalls where um, if you don't want to subscribe for a year or a month whatever you just want to consume one piece of content you can click a button and pay over the lightning network uh, 50 cents a dollar whatever you price your individual articles at and that goes straight to uh, a a node and a wallet that you control. And so essentially, uh, right. And it's not due to the fact that Bitcoin isn't widely adopted yet. Uh, it's not at a critical mass where I'm making a ton of money from that, but the primitives are there where it's all right. We have, uh, we're combining open source content management system with open source Bitcoin payment processing. And it is creating a media company where we can never be canceled from a monetary or um, uh, a sort of, server infrastructure perspective okay very cool so yeah i I use ghost for my newsletter it's it's a great piece of software basically what you're doing is you're using that which is open source open source software which you can run on your own servers and you're basically just uh cutting out the stripe processing and in favor of bitcoin money like bitcoin processing basically uh is that that's basically the idea so you're trying to replicate the Substack use case basically exactly as it is but uh, specifically with Bitcoin payments? Yes. Yeah, essentially. I mean, we still have Stripe there. If people want to pay in Stripe, I mean, we haven't been cut off Stripe yet. Um, But yeah, essentially, there there is a model which if you essentially just gutted Ghost and cut out Stripe 
um, you can you, know, you can go Bitcoin only on that, monetize that way, and again the power of that it goes directly to a wallet that you control. And then we were mentioning podcasting 2.0. So for the podcast, uh, Adam Curry who invented podcasting, Steve Jobs, he's uh, sort of iterated on his original vision of podcasting with podcasting 2.0. And essentially, all he did there was these podcasts are distributed via RSS feed, and he went in to the RSS feed architecture and added what he calls a value block where um, you know, obviously you put the files and all the information about your individual episode, but now you can put a Lightning Network address in your RSS feed too. And so when I send my podcast out over RSS, it includes my Lightning Network address. And as people listen to my show on podcasting apps that have Bitcoin wallets in them, they can send me, uh, stream me, sats satoshis little parts of bitcoin as they listen they can they can boost say oh i really liked this particular uh section of the podcast so i'm going to send you a bit more uh <clears throat> and again that's going directly from my listeners uh, a lot of these apps allow um, listeners to control their bitcoin so they're not trusting like a centralized third party uh, so it's going straight from their wallet to my wallet there's no ability for uh, the government or a corporation to come in and say, no, you can't send this Bitcoin to Marty. Right. Okay. No, that's very cool. I, I can see that for sure. Um, can people be on the lookout for this? Should we expect this within months, within years? What's, what's the I mean, your project in particular? So right now for TFTC, uh, we do, we have the BTC pay server and ghost in implementation integrated. Uh, there's many ways you can go play around with that. You can tip us, if you go to the bottom of an article of Marty's Bent, you'll see like a little tipping mechanism. Like, hey, I want to send Marty two bucks. It'll produce an invoice and you just send it over Lightning. Um, we have uh, we have had a few issues that we've tested out with the, the we've, our paywalls per issue is 25 cents right now. We were just like, just wanted to see if people would use it. It has, a lot of Bitcoiners have used it. Um, but yeah, the developer I'm working with, he's, Essentially, over the course of this summer, and it's not a shame, but like uh, he's a full-time, uh, he's working at a very big tech company full-time, and this is sort of his side project that he's helping me out with, um, but he's working to package it in a way where anybody who wants to spin up a ghost instance can can easily integrate like BTC Pay Server, and they can go to Ghost, integrate with BTC Pay Server, and um, do this themselves out of the yeah. box. I think that's exciting. That makes a lot of sense to me. I'll, I'll definitely be on the lookout for that. So, I mean, I think what's interesting about this discussion is that even if one is kind of hardcore Bitcoin only, it is kind of interesting to see what's going on in the Ethereum space with the creator tools in particular. You know, I think if, even if one doesn't like Ethereum for any reason, um, you do kind of have to admit that in terms of shipping cool products for creators that you can actually use and make money with, um, there is pretty interesting innovation and, and actual shipping going on in in ETH. What's your read on that? Do you do you do you see any threat where like somehow ETH kind of continues to dominate the the creator tooling? Um, or do you just think eventually all that's going to get eaten back up by, you know, hyper Bitcoinization? What's your mental model for the long term in, in that regard? Yeah, I think ETH's an extension of the de degeneracy that exists in our world today. And um I think Ethereum's a Dune project. I think it's a, especially with their transition to Ethereum 2.0, it's a prototypical second system uh, syndrome problem. I don't think they're going to be able to do that successfully. I mean, they might merge, but I think they'll find the Ethereum network specifically is caught between a rock and a hard place where, again, going back to proof of work, it's all about the energy. Bitcoin's won the energy game. It's going to win the digital money game. Uh, if Ethereum does transition to proof of stake, they're competing with people that have already done it better, whether it be like um, Solana, other projects. Um, but then coming back to like the individual content creator you know, tooling, like I think it's just, again, going back to extension of degeneracy in the broader world, it's like NFTs and you know, it's just very clout chasey to me where like podcasting 2.0 and what we're building at TFTC, it's, it's not uh, like, it's if you with podcasting 2.0 you send us as many sats as you want to if you're getting value from the podcast we're not like creating a a scarce token where we're going to have our our audience like bid for it so that they can say like look i own this and um uh, like i'm the best tftc listener like i don't want to create that clout chasing model which i think a lot of the nft nft monetization schemes are creating um i think 
the way podcasting 2.0 and uh, like the, the content paywall uh, infrastructure is being built out on top of Bitcoin and Lightning is much more um, open. Where it's like I have listeners in Africa like, that really, and readers in Africa that really like our stuff, they're not going to buy like a, a $10,000 NFT, but they will stream me 10 sats, which is a fraction of a penny. And that's just a, um, a recognition by them like, hey, like I really like what you're doing. I can only send you 10 sats. So that's what I'm going to do. And they feel like they're participating in our. Um, TFTC community, whatever you want to call it, and they, they feel like they're contributing where I think a lot of what's being built on top of Ethereum is this, again, this clout chasing, these clout chasing mechanisms that really, they just maybe it's just me, my uh, own individual preference, but it, it doesn't, it seems a little icky to me. Sure. Yeah, that's, that's a fair take. I was just kind of curious because it seems like, a lot, you know, a lot of people do have MetaMask installed, let's say, or, you know, they've... Uh, I mean, there's like the mirror.xyz blog tool, which is, you know, kind of interesting, has has some has some real features, like kind of a lot of features by this point. So I was just curious if you see that as and, and that kind of a little bit of a head start um, in terms of users uh, normalizing their behaviors when it comes to content, paying for things, blogging with these types of tooling. I was just curious if you saw any kind of, you know, threat or, or, or competition there or not really. No, I mean, the mirror.xyz thing is helping people like blog, but like, again, this all... Bitcoin, Ethereum, they're all supposed to be distributed systems that are uh, able to protect themselves against centralizing forces. And just the way Ethereum designed its blockchain with having robust scriptability at the uh, protocol level, like it's Ethereum's already centralized. <laughs> like, so while I, I, I can't admit, like it's pretty cool that they're building that tooling, like it's, it's you're building this stuff on on uh, a, a base of sand, essentially, where on Bitcoin, it's, again, it's hard. The stuff, the content monetization stuff uh, that's being built out on Bitcoin is it's not easy or straightforward, but it will get easier with time. Um, and I say this quite often in the newsletter and on the podcast is that I believe there's an order of operations to all this. While all that tooling is cool, I don't think it's imperative right now where at this point in Bitcoin's, Life, uh, life cycle, like it's, the imperative is distributing hash rate as, uh, as far and wide as possible, making sure that people are able to spin up full nodes as easily as possible, as cheaply as possible, uh, and then <coughs> creating utility um, for those users to send and receive Bitcoin on top of those very uh, structurally sound bases. Uh, I do think a lot of that stuff is already coming to Bitcoin. Like you mentioned, MetaBass, there's plenty of browser extension. Bitcoin Lightning wallets, Albi is one of them that exist out there, and, and they're coming to market at a quicker and quicker pace. I just think um, the, the Ethereum ecosystem is really just hopped on this like JavaScript kitty. Like we can build things fast and quick and move, move fast and break things, where if you actually want to have a robust, truly distributed and uh, secure system that isn't susceptible to centralizing forces, you need to focus, again, going back to the order of operations on like the most important things, which is making sure that everything's sufficiently distributed and uh, gives individuals the ability to participate in the network by themselves without having to rely on an Infura or a MetaMask, if you will. Right. Okay. Yeah. No, fair take. Well argued. So, you know, some Bitcoin guys won't really ever say anything positive about anything other than Bitcoin. But you you are at least interested in, curious about, uh, somewhat sympathetic to Urbit, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, you know, people, you know, might be curious to know about how do you see Urbit in this mix? And, you know, because some people probably who are Bitcoin guys, you know, are inclined to call everything a shitcoin. Urbit <laughs> is a shitcoin. Urbit is just vaporware. It's a ridiculous art project. Yeah, you know, these are these are common kind of skeptical memes about Urbit. Uh, and so as, as a Bitcoin guy, you know, how do you think about Urbit and why are you interested in in Urbit when you know so many other projects um, might just you know you'd be willing to write them off? Yeah, um, Urbit gets thrown as a shitcoin because they did their token uh, distribution using Ethereum. But uh, if you uh, separate the token distribution from the overarching goal of Urbit, which is 
very much aligned with what I was describing earlier with our ghost and BTC server uh, instances. You want to control your data on machines that you control. That's what Urbit's trying to build. And I played around with Urbit. I haven't uh, admittedly in many months, but I have been in there. I have posted a a newsletter in there and it does work. Um, I do. uh, I just think the, the, the goal of getting users to control their own data at the end of the day is uh, virtuous and something we should be striving for. So whether it's Urbit or something like Start9 Labs or like even at a smaller scale, like an Umbrella node um, uh, instance, like I, I like projects like that that are trying to give uh, individuals power over their data and control over their data because that's, again, how a lot of control uh, in the digital world is is um, is used is by having people silo their data and huge server farms. So basically it sounds like you're saying you, you, you're not interested in any kind of competitor coins or currencies, but when it comes to the specific problem of kind of digital sovereignty over one's computation, you see that as a sufficiently separate domain that, that calls for new technologies that are not competing with Bitcoin, uh, but that ideally will uh, interact with Bitcoin productively. Yeah. yeah. And, and you think Urbit is a competitor in that I think uh, so. proposition? I mean, and again, I'm not an expert on Urbit. I mean, I've, I've been very close with Christian, who we both know has been working on it. And um, I, I did the last summer, uh, Urbit implemented a Bitcoin wallet, and I was part of that uh, announcement. And, I recall that, and that's yeah. why I'm asking you now. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, no, I think... Um, I do see it as separate, even though the token distribution was done on uh, Ethereum and you have like uh, the, uh, the, I know you guys changed the nomenclature, but like stars and um, galaxies and all that, but, and ships, but uh, going back to like owning your own data, like I think that is an important goal to be striving for. And Urbit's certainly, I mean, it's not vaporware. I think the biggest problem for Urbit is Hoon. Uh, talking to all my friends in the Bitcoin space who are protocol engineers and understand how these distributed systems work, and they, um, and I know the Urbit guys uh, will have many arguments uh, against it, but like, they just think it's extremely, uh, what's the word? Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? It's extremely. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? And creating your own like Unix-like language is very. Uh, it, right. It's a it's a big goal. And right. That's what the protocol de- developers I talk to when I ask them about it was like I don't know how they're going to get like Mindshare when they're right. switching to Hoon. Right. Yeah. One of the many. One of the many reasonable you know skepticisms. So fair enough. Well, so before I let you go, I'm just kind of curious if. Uh, if there are any wild cards here, or what what's going on in the world that you know kind of maybe is most exciting to you that maybe people are sleeping on, whether that's in Bitcoin or you know uh, energy economics in, in you know in the United States or maybe with with media. I'm just curious, you know, um, what what are the are is there anything kind of on the horizon, some really asymmetric possibility in Bitcoin world that you think people are sleeping on? Um, I think. Bitcoin historically has been derided for the fact that it's not as private as many people would like it to be. I mean, if you are objective, uh, you have to admit that uh, Bitcoin's privacy assurances are subpar compared to some other solutions. But I I do think that there are a lot of people sleeping on the developments in terms of uh, privacy tech being brought to Bitcoin um, and with different trade-offs. So something I'm really excited about is Chami and Mints being built on top of Bitcoin uh, and the Lightning Network. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think another of our mutual friends, Justin Moon, is working on that. Yes, right? yes, yeah, yes. Maybe could you explain that briefly? Um, so, yeah, uh, Chami and Mints are an idea that, um, <coughs> or that came to the world well before Bitcoin. Um, and the problem that I think they did experiment with them with the 90s, but in the 90s, the Mint had a central, uh, basically, coordinator who would uh, control the Mint. And that was a problem because if you find that central coordinator, uh, you can easily shut down that Mint. Within the Mint, everything was private, and the coordinator didn't really know what was going on or who was doing what. But the, the central nature of having one coordinator really 
made those projects in the 90s dead on the dead on arrival uh now via bitcoin uh and particularly multi-sig uh, you can create chami mints using federation so instead of having one central coordinator for a mint you can have dozens um you can have uh, n of m you can have a, a number of coordinators that are geographically dispersed anonymous whatever it may be and they can basically control this mint and so it's much harder to shut down and so eric syrian uh, as a developer has been working on a protocol called fedimint um, which is an open source protocol that will allow you to build these federations uh, these chamian federations on top of bitcoin and essentially what that will do is bring more privacy to bitcoin but with a trade-off it's not fully custodial um, where the end user doesn't have full control. At the end of the day, they're depending on the distributed federation not to rug pull them. But uh, compared to something like holding your Bitcoin on Coinbase or Gemini, it's certainly an improvement. And then in terms of transaction privacy, it's it's pretty bulletproof where they use blinded signatures um, to create these eCash tokens and allow you to uh, send them between other users and the coordinators have no idea what's going on. And so you can create these mints, send Bitcoin to it, get eCash tokens in uh, return, and then transact with them over the Lightning Network, um, which will have instant final settlement. So you can use it transactionally uh, and not have to wait for six confirmations on chain and, and do it in a very private way. So that is privacy tech I'm really excited about. But does have trade-offs, particularly on the custody side. Um, CoinJoin, I think the what's happening with Samurai Wallet and their Whirlpool um, uh, setup, they, they've sort of, they, what we're seeing there is other wallets are beginning to implement Whirlpool and then allow their users to interact with the uh, Samurai's CoinJoin protocol. Like Sparrow Wallet is the first to do that. And um, that has been gaining traction as well. I believe they hit all-time high in unspent capacity just yesterday. Um, and so more people are coin joining, which uh, is a way in which you can create a, what you do is you enter in a transaction with multiple other users with the uh, same sized input. So a million Satoshis, you basically have a transaction with a bunch of other people all putting a million Satoshis in. And then on the back end there, you get an output with a million Satoshis uh, minus the fee. Um, and there's extremely hard to track that using chain analysis. You essentially um, uh, perturb the chain history of your UTXO using that technology. So that's happening. And then I think things like Taproot and Schnorr, which just got implemented into the protocol last year, will begin um, to allow developers to build even more um, obscure uh, transaction models that will help with privacy. And so I'm very bullish on Bitcoin privacy. Again, cool. it's subpar. It needs to get better. But I think they're going back to the order of operations. Um, it's something we definitely need to have. I think we will have it. Um, and, it and things are being built. And people like to poo-poo Bitcoin because it's not perfectly private yet. But uh, I do think there are a lot of people sleeping on the, the solutions that are coming to market. Great. Love it. Exciting things to look out for. All right, Marty Bent, tftc.io. Justin. Any, anywhere else you want to send people if they want to connect with you on any of this? I hang out on Twitter a lot, at Marty Bent. Um, I'll be there until they kick me off. All right, man, this is awesome. Thank you so much for coming through. Always good to meet another uh, New Jersey Catholic kid. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Justin. That's a wrap. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end, so you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review, and it'll send you to Apple Podcasts. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show, and I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening, and thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.